most of you probably know about team sports, that when you play a team sport, you have different roles that everybody plays. Um, I was cross country, so that's not a team, it's every man for himself in cross country, but I know, you know occasionally I would play basketball, of which I'm not very good. I'm short and I can't jump. So I never played center. And that would be ludicrous to put me in the place of center, and it would be fun to, funny to watch, but um, there's, it'd just be senseless. And it's the same thing in the church. There are a number of different roles, and God has specifically gifted all of us for the particular, particular role that he has us in. And the text we're going to look at this morning um, is a place where I call it differentiating out the roles from really the one major role of apostle that the leadership begins to grow and expand uh, in the early church. In chapter 6, verses 1 through, we're going to look at chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now, I want to kind of warn you, not warn, but I'll let you know, because listening to a sermon is kind of a psychological thing. Most of this sermon is in uh, numbers 1 and 2 in the outline, so if we get to the end of number two and you feel like it's time to go home, it probably is. And uh, the last two points are going to be really like a conclusion. I'm just going to make a few points about that. So don't worry about it if uh, point number one takes a long time. I don't have any way to keep track of time, so John just goes like this when it's time for me to end. So hopefully he'll remember to do that. Now in these days, so what days were these? Um, it was great to read that, to sing that song we just sang, uh, because it's, it really declared the kind of days that he was talking about, when the church was united, when the church was one. Can you imagine that the church, every believer on the earth was united together, and uh, really moving in the same direction, and being uh, of one accord? So these days, we see it in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So how fantastic. Uh, those days are long gone, but that was the beginning of the church. And then the other part of those days is in the verse just before in chapter 5, verse 42, and every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So in the big gathering at the temple and then the smaller groups, house to house, just like you do today, um, they were teaching Jesus. From the Old Testament, that was their Bible, and just who Jesus was and mostly that Jesus is Messiah and all that that means with the Messiah that was the suffering servant and not yet the reigning uh, king. So that's what's going on. Great stuff. Unified, the best teaching there was out there in the whole world at this point. But um, trouble is brewing because when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, two things about increasing in number. The first thing is there's nothing wrong about that. In fact, it's very good when, a, when church growth is good, as long as church growth is not the goal. When church growth becomes the goal, then it becomes weird. But church growth is natural if the body of Christ is doing their thing. The last verse, verse 7, that we're going to look at um, shows that uh, the increase in church growth uh, actually ex exponentially expanded because of how they dealt with the problem that was coming up. 
So the problem that's about to arise is a huge church split. This church that's unified is about to, uh, is about to explode and split. And we'll see that. When the disciples were increasing in number, oh, the other thing, that's the one thing, is that increasing is good. There's nothing wrong about that. The other thing is that when a church increases, this was a big church, it causes pain. Things have to change, and that's what's happening here. It's causing a lot of pain because there wasn't enough leadership to go around. And so uh, problems came about, and the church is beginning to divide, and we'll see that. A, a complaint by the Hellenist, Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So first of all, the Hellenists were, a simple way of looking at it is they were Jews that grew up outside of Israel, some other place, Gentile lands, and most of them spoke Greek. The Hebrews were Jews that grew up in, in uh, Israel, in the Holy Land, or the surrounding areas, and most of them spoke Aramaic. So there was a geographic difference and a language difference, and I imagine there was a cultural difference uh, between the Hellenists and the, and the Hebrews. So a complaint arose. Uh, between those two groups. Now the word complaint, Luke uses a number of words that actually tell a story within the story. And there's three of those words in the first verse of our text. So this is the first word that tells a story within a story. And it's hard to translate that into English. But let me read what this word translated complaint means. A muttering, a murmuring, a low and suppressed discourse, the expression of secrets, a sullen discontent, complaining. So really what happened was not a complaint, because they did have a complaint that we'll see, and it was a legitimate complaint, but what was going wrong is that they were complaining, they were murmuring, but not to the right people. They were talking about it amongst themselves and beginning to complain. God doesn't like this. Uh, Numbers uh, chapter 11, and I believe I have this on the PowerPoint. It's up there. So, have mercy on the guy doing the PowerPoint because John and I are probably very different in our presentation. And he just got it this morning. Uh, so he's going to be doing his best, and that'll be all right. So, but there's a lot of verses, so I wanted you to be able to read up there rather than flip back and forth. Uh, Numbers chapter 11 is a pivotal place in the history both of the world and of Israel. The... The Israelites have been seated at the foot of Mount Sinai for about a year and a month, but over a year, and now it's time for them to move out. In fact, they moved out three days before chapter 11. So they're at Mount Sinai. They have this wonderful um, announcement God has given them to say when they leave and when they come back, really calling God to be part of their lives. And for three days they've marched, and then we hit... Uh, 11 verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. By the way, when you're complaining, um, it's in the presence of the Lord. It may seem secret between you and another, but it's in the presence of the Lord. So they complained in the hearing of the Lord because it doesn't matter where you are, God's going to hear it, right? Because he's omnipresent. So they complained in his hearing about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard of it, of it his anger was kindled. And the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. 
Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died down. So God does not like this. For some reason, this is a, a sin that we do that he doesn't like. And the fire fell down, and the wrath of God came because they were, they were murmuring about something legitimate. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any uh, thing to drink. I think. I, I don't know what they were murmuring about, actually. But they were murmuring and complaining three days into their march to the Holy Land, the place promised to them for about 600 years. They're on their way. They're almost there. And what do they do? They start complaining. Beware of complaining about taking something that's wrong and going the wrong direction with it. You know what to do with a complaint. Um, I know that you've been taught this. If you have a complaint about somebody, you go to that somebody and tell them. This complaining was probably about the leadership, was directed to Moses. The complaining in our text in Acts was really directed at the leadership because of the problem that was happening. But instead of going to them and talking to them about it, they were murmuring among themselves. So listen to what uh, the apostles say about murmuring. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, no, before that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 10, uh, Paul actually builds on the book of Numbers that we just read, and he says, nor grumble, that's this word that we have in our text this morning, translated complaint, nor grumble or complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, and we saw that, it's by fire that killed them. Then Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without complaining. And then Paul again in Philippians chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter we, we read this morning, do everything without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. So on that list that we confessed of the things we do, I think we need to put grumbling and disputing in that list. Now, for your small groups, you're going to be asked, um, why do you, personally, why do you go to the wrong person when you have an, a complaint or, you have, or you've been offended? Now, don't worry about being honest about this because we've all done it. All of us. We've all gone to the wrong person to complain about somebody else or about the leadership in the church. So why do we do that? I want you to discuss that. I think it can be very helpful for you personally and for the entire church if you all discuss that, um, why you do that, and then uh, what you should do, which is go to the right person. Why do you, we so often not go to the party that needs to hear? So um, nobody's saying, no, I never did that. So you're all in the same boat. Don't be afraid to be honest. So what's the complaint? Notice, first of all, that there already is a us, them. By the Hellenists, the complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. So there's already a division that's happening, and it's in us, them. Us, the Hellenists, them, the Hebrews. Now, isn't it interesting? It's not us and the world. It's not even us and the Gentiles. It's a certain kind of Jew against another kind of Jew. In other words, they're really the same, the same. They're the same group. But for some reason, and we're going to see the reason, uh, there's beginning to be a division and divide. Between the church. Can you imagine what would, what would have happened if the church at this point had split down the middle between Hellenists and Hebrews? I can't imagine. I praise the Lord that we don't have to imagine uh, because it didn't happen because of the wisdom of the, of the apostles at the time. So, 
The complaint was legitimate. The complaining is always a sin. What was the complaint? It's very interesting. This is another uh, word picture or story picture that, that, um, that Luke gives us. They were being neglected in the daily distribution of the uh, distribution in the daily distribution. Now, this word neglected uh, means to compare side by side and then look disfavorably at, at whoever that you're comparing it with. In other words, to place people beside you and then compare yourself to them, either that you're better than them or they're better than you. This was going on between the Hebrew Christians and the Hellenistic Christians, really all of them Jews for the most part. They were beginning to, to make a, to see themselves as better. Apparently the Hebrew ones did because it would be natural for them to uh, think well of themselves. And the Hellenistic would naturally be, feel a little bit um, less than those raised in Israel and possibly knowing Hebrew. Uh, they spoke Aramaic, but they would feel less. So we don't discriminate in a sense by this measure uh, in the church. Out in the world, we discriminate by anything that we can. But in the church, a discrimination is very subtle. Um, it can be based on income. It can be based on education. It can be based on health, physical health, mental health, emotional health, um, a number of different ways, appearance. Um, and both, sometimes we, we think we're less than others because we're less in some area. And sometimes we think we're better than others because we're better in some area. But what happens is that we get a group of people that become marginalized. In other words, they're pushed to the margins, to the side, and in a sense overlooked and are not central to the work of, of the church. But the work of the church is for everybody. Um, if you feel marginalized, if you feel small, you're not. You are precious in the sight of God. It doesn't matter if you're bipolar, or if you're making minimum wage, or if you're unemployed, or if your family situation is in, in shambles. In your relationship with the church, in your relationship with God, uh, you are precious and God has a place for you in this body, um, if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, you need to pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then you're one of us, and you're a part, no matter how you feel. So. Uh, this is another thing that you're going to be asked to think about. What are some of the things that really subconsciously you may um, or that people can feel marginalized because they don't, they're not up to snuff in some area? It's a very sensitive uh, thing to think about. You know, last time I was here, I had a very encouraging word from the Lord. Uh, this time's not so much. <laughs> it's more, um, today I'm more going to be afflicting the comfortable. So think about it. It'll be good for this body if you think about all these things. There should not be anybody marginalized, no matter what. There just shouldn't be, because we're one in Christ. We are redeemed. Uh, the day is going to be when we're going to stand side by side in the glory of God, wearing the same white robes, with the same glory reflected in our place, perfectly holy, and uh, everything that we can possibly be. The day's going to come. And then all these things where we think that we don't measure up, we're going to see that was part of the plan. We weren't supposed to measure up because God had a place for us where we are. Um, does that all make sense? Okay, thank you. I wasn't sure if I was 
communicating or not, but sounds like I was to one guy. Um, <laughs> James talks about this in James chapter 2, 1 through 9. I don't have this on the PowerPoint because it was too much typing. Um, James chapter 2. Uh, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the command, really, for us all. Show no partiality. And this is, he's going to talk about money here, but I think that it happens a lot with, with health, physical, mental, emotional health, doesn't it? It happens with that. Um, that I know those who, who, have, who struggle with mental health, for example, feel marginalized. They don't measure up to those who are solid. Probably had a completely different upbringing. Uh, but if you are suffering from any of those things, you're a part of this body, an important part of this body, and a child of God, and he's at work in your life and has a place for you. I've said that before, so that's enough of that. But verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, now I think here he's talking about two believers. He's not talking about somebody shambling him off the street that's lived a life of debauchery, and expects to be treated the same way. It's not going to happen. He's talking about two believers from two different backgrounds. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So remember that when you're, when you're, when you're looking at other people and judging where you sit, those are evil thoughts. That's what James says. He doesn't pull his punches. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and honorably name the honorable name by which you were called. He's not saying that these Christians are doing that. He's saying that, generally speaking, that's what the rich do in that culture, maybe in our culture, I don't know. But he's saying, why would you pander to somebody that's in that category? When we come in these doors and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're the redeemed. Doesn't matter your income status and how well you're dressed. So that's what's happening here. It's a terrible thing. In... Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7, I don't know if I have that up here on the PowerPoint, but it says, Jehoshaphat, uh, he, Jehoshaphat's a great king. I hope that you will spend some time in, it's about 2 Chronicles 17 through 19, and just ponder uh, how great this man Jehoshaphat was. You don't hear about him much, unless John has preached on him, I don't know. Um, but he sent the Levites into the towns to do their job, which they should have been doing all along. And he appointed them as judges. And this is what he said. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with Yahweh our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. In other words, he says, when you go out there, don't treat one person better than the other because you like them better. Don't do that. God doesn't like it. There is none of that with him. So that's our second story word. It shows really the, the complaint was legitimate. The, the widows were being neglected because they were marginalized and they weren't seen as, as, as important as the Hebrew uh, widows. Now, the widows is very um, emphasized in this text because they're at the top of the list. Uh, biblically, they're at the top of the list of those who are the most vulnerable. 
from really the beginning of the Bible to the end. Who's most vulnerable? The widows, number one, and then the orphans, number two. So it's very important, this ministry. It can't, it can't be neglected. You can't push them to the side uh, because they're different from you. You've got to take care of these women. So it's a legitimate complaint and very important. So the elders, finally, the apostles hear. They didn't hear right away. Uh, they probably were not the ones that were actually handing out the, the meals. Um, somebody else was, or a group were, and somehow they got overlooked. Uh, it looks like on purpose. But finally they hear, and so they must have met together and said, well, what are we going to do about this? We can't oversee this ministry. Our ministry is too important. So it moves in. Oh, wait, there's a third story word uh, that's, that's, um, that's actually difficult. But the word daily and saying that they're being neglected in the daily distribution, the word daily is not the positive daily like in give us this day our daily bread. It's a word that's only used one, once in the Bible here. And it's written by a doctor, and it's a medical term, and it means chronic or um, regularly occurring. Usually outside of the Bible where we find this word, it's with a fever, a chronic fever. Every morning you wake up with a fever. So that's the idea. So it, it doesn't fit really good, but I think that the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke is telling us that this is a symptom of a disease that's about to erupt in the church and destroy it. So they needed to, to, to face it and deal with it, which is what the apostles do. They take care of the disease that has these symptoms uh, by differentiating and uh, getting help. So that, the first point was discrimination leading to neglect. The second point is differentiating to broaden the scope of service, hence meeting more needs. Um, and that is in verses 2 through five. And the twelve summoned the full number of the of disciples and said. So this is interesting. This is the only, uh, or this is the first time anyway, it talks about the twelve, and I think one other place it does. But what's in, interesting about that, and this is a side note, is that when the apostles appointed Matthias as the twelfth apostle, that was the Lord's doing. He was the twelfth apostle. Paul wasn't the twelfth apostle. He might have been the thirteenth, but the twelve were already here before Paul came on the scene. So it was the 11, now it's the 12. So that's just a side note. It has nothing really to do with our tech, I mean, with, our, with the point. Um, but they, they summoned the full number of disciples, though, everybody that could come, men, women, children. I uh, imagine they must have met in the temple court somewhere large. Uh, you could meet outside in their, in their uh, environment. Um, but they, they invited everybody to this meeting. There was nobody left out, so it would be the Hellenists and the Hebrews, and they're going to talk about the issue. Um, uh, the full number of the disciples. By the way, this is a new name for them. It's the first time they're called disciples. They're only called disciples for a little while. Then Acts starts calling them the way, and Paul calls us saints. Uh, the word disciples is not in the uh, epistles of the apostles. Um, it, there we're called saints. So all those words are good. The disciples, that's what we are, disciples of Christ. The way, it's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. And, uh, and we're saints, which I heard this morning that Pastor John has preached on. So you know what saints are? It's you. If you're a child of God, you're washed clean, you're holy before God. 
So the disciples, he called them all together and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So this idea is that there's right and wrong. This is an ethical thing. And this is the right thing, we, you know, through prayer and through discussion and through thinking. We know that this is right, that our job is the word of God. That's the right thing. So it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Now, the, the idea of give up is pretty strong. Um, you could say abandon the word of God. So these preachers, remember, this is the beginning, really, of the church. The people needed to be taught. And this was a group of people that was with Jesus and was taught by Jesus. And uh, with the Holy Spirit, all that teaching is coming back uh, for them to teach the people. So it's not right for us to abandon the word of God to wait on tables. Now, that's a funny phrase, isn't it? Uh, to abandon the word to wait on tables because you picture, you know, waiter in a restaurant. Uh, but that's not really what this means. Table in the Middle Eastern world, really in the, all the old world, even up to this day, the table is very important. Um, gathering around the table as a family, uh, being hospitable, was an important thing in their culture. It was a daily thing where the whole family gathered and you talked uh, and you just had a good time with each other. So a table was really the center part of their fellowship and that would spread into the church because that was their culture. It's like if you're a Baptist, it's, Baptist is potlucks. Um, for them, it was the table. That's the Baptist. I was raised a Baptist, uh, so it's in my blood. Potlucks are in my blood, um, and they're good. Uh, but that's important to them. So it's a, it's a very important thing he's saying. So here's a, an extremely important thing to do in their fellowship and in their culture. But it says, we can't abandon what we've been called to do, and they know what they've been called to do, and they're willing to say, this is what we've been called to do. It's not up to anybody else. The Spirit of God has put us here in this position, and the picking of Jesus Christ has put us here in this position, and so we can't take the time to wait on tables to make sure this ministry is going to be happening. Then they come up with their brilliant idea, I'm sure led by the Spirit. He says, therefore, brothers, by the way, women, when you see brothers in the Bible, especially the New Testament, includes you. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that we are predestined to be um, adopted as sons. Now, the text is sons, not sons and daughters, not children of God. We are predestined to be adopted as sons. Why? Why doesn't it say sons and daughters? Because in the Roman culture, when you adopt a son, he gets the same privileges, rights, and responsibilities as the natural-born son. If you adopt a, a daughter, a young woman or a girl, she's basically a slave. So this is a brilliant thing that the Spirit of God through Paul has told all the women, you're adopted as sons. You have all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of the natural-born son. Isn't that great? It's a huge thing for women. It's not demeaning. Um, and who's the natural-born son? Jesus. So we have the rights and privileges and responsibilities as the, as the natural-born son, Jesus Christ of God. That's a cool thing. So when you see brothers in the, in the scripture, don't feel left out. You're part of that. Now, when you see man, that's different. In fact, we see that word in this text because he says in verse 3, Therefore, brothers... Pick out among you seven men of good repute, and I'm not going to go into that whole thing, but it was, uh, it was, they were very particular on that. Uh, men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So he's giving this task to the congregation. 
to the full group that is there. He didn't say, we're going to choose these men and have you vote on them. Instead, it's you choose these men and then we'll appoint them. It's giving them complete, uh, it's complete trust that's giving them this thing. Now, they didn't vote. This is not a democracy. Somehow they got together. The congregation got together. We're talking about thousands of people, and they were able to narrow it down to seven men. Uh, by the way, why seven? I'm not sure, but I do know that seven is a powerful biblical number. It means uh, more than you need. Seven is more than you need. God needed six days to create the universe. I don't think need is probably the right word, but he needed six days to create the universe, so he took seven. He had a day left over where he could just kick back and enjoy what he had created. So that's the, the idea of seven, is that it's, it's enough. In fact, it's a little more. So seven men would be enough for this task. Um, and so the congregation got together, and somehow, and I want you to ponder that also during your small group time, what would that look like to come to a firm decision without voting? It's hard for us to imagine that, but they did. They came up with a set. They had criteria for these seven men. First of all, that they they be men of good repute. That means that, what do people say about them? A good reputation. Uh, what do their neighbors say? What does their family say? What's, what's their wife say you know, about them? Do they have a good reputation? And then full of the spirit and of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to live out, or not the ability, but the living out of the word of God in life. That's wisdom. Um, and so the Holy Spirit would be part of that, uh, that whole picture of that. But full of means this is their characteristic. When you see them, you see them living out the spirit of God. You see them living out the scripture with the power of the spirit. Now the, the word for pick out is another word picture. It's the idea of carefully looking at them and then making your choice. So in other words, you watch them. Say, what, what do their neighbors think? Uh, what's their life like? Uh, are they biblically oriented and are they living that? Do they do, they do what they preach? Are they, the, are they godly men? So you look for that and then you choose seven. Now it seems like a high standard, but there isn't anybody in here, if you're a child of God, that can't achieve that standard. Uh, to, be, to have a good reputation. And how do you get a good reputation? By living out the word of God. Now, some people won't like that because they want to live in sin. They don't like you around because you embarrass them and make them feel uncomfortable. That's all right. We're good with that. Um, but generally speaking, if you're li living out the word of God, your neighbors are going to like you. Um, and they'll have a good word to say about you. And so will your family and so will your co-workers. Um, they'll have something good to say about you because you'll be different if you're living out the word of God. So you can all attain to being full of the spirit and, and of wisdom. It gives you a lifelong goal. But we, but we, verse 4, but we. So he says it's going to be a difference. There's going to be these seven men. They're going to have a duty, this duty of taking care of, of the widows and many other things. Um, and you know from the story that follows that uh, they do more than just wait on tables. In fact, it was good to read on about Stephen. Um, by the way, oh, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word or the service of the word. Devote means to um, be completely engaged without distractions. So we will be completely engaged without distraction in prayer and in the ministry of the word. This is the calling of your pastor. And it's good for me to pray that here, 
because that's not me. I'm not your pastor. I'm just an itinerant speaker um, coming through. But this is the calling of your pastor, prayer and the ministry of the word. This is primary calling. And he needs to have the time to devote himself to that. Um, what, uh, why prayer? Prayer really is something that's been marginalized in our society. Why did the apostles need to devote themselves to prayer? And why does your pastor need to devote yourself to prayer? And why do I specify your pastor? Um, it's not because he's a friend of mine. It's because you're paying him so he doesn't have to be distracted by the things of the world so that he can pray for you um, so that he can take the time. And it takes a lot of time to pray. So I've got six things of why prayer. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to say, notice what the apostles didn't do. They didn't blame anybody, and they didn't justify their own decisions, because ultimately they were responsible. But they didn't do that. That's never helpful. Um, why prayer? Number one, prayer is a commodity. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, 2 through 5, we find our prayers in bowls. So in other words, when we pray, it just doesn't dissipate into the air. Uh, it's, it's actually a tangible commodity for God, and God uses it. It's not a commodity for us. It's a commodity for God. So when you pray, um, especially if you're praying daily, say for your oikos, those prayers are piling up. I really believe that when we pray daily for someone, say their safety, the physical safety, it piles up. It really builds a wall between the desires of the devil um, and the person that we're praying for. So prayer is a commodity. Um, even in, in our speech to each other, uh, when we speak, the words don't just disappear. Uh, they go in, and if somebody says something to another person that's hurtful, you know, they carry that hurt for a long time, right? We've all had that happen to us. And if somebody says a word to us that's encouraging, we carry that with us. I still can hear words of encouragement that I've had here uh, over the few years that I've been here with you. Um, it sticks with us. Words are powerful, and prayer is powerful. It's, uh, it, it's tangible. So that's number one. Number two, all the great work of God throughout history and through the, in the Bible is accompanied and usually preceded by prayer. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. This is my favorite prayer in the Bible. Um, I believe that this was also Jehoshaphat. Uh, he, I could be wrong, but he prayed to God. They have but armies are coming against them. And he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes on you are on you. Isn't that a great prayer? I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's how I got through counseling as a pastor. I have no idea what to say to this person. But you do, and usually God would come through. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes I had to say, I don't know what to say. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So prayer accompanies the great work of God. There is no great work of God without prayer. There's just not going to be. Then number three, the glory of God and of Scripture is revealed in prayer. You want your pastor to be a man that's, that, that has seen the glory of God, right? I, I don't mean physically, uh, coming in here and, and, and colors all over. I'm meaning that he's just been in prayer and in Scripture and he's seen the glory of God so that he can come and try to communicate that with you. I mean, I want my pastor to be like that. So he's been before the Lord enough. So he sees the magnificence of God in all that, that God has done through him, through Jesus Christ. So that comes to us actually more in prayer than in Bible reading. So it's great when you're reading the Bible and praying simultaneously. 
Then there's insights for people and teaching that come through prayer. Really, if, if you want your pastor to be someone that can help spiritually lead you, he needs to have time to pray about that because um, none of us know everything. All of us know very little. <laughs> and we certainly don't know enough to know what you need. But God knows. And so your pastor needs to be praying for that. I'm, you need to be praying for this too, but I'm talking about why your pastor needs to carve out big chunks of time just to spend in prayer. And then number five, it keeps your pastor on task of his relationship to God. When I would pray for, I would pray for the congregation weekly, usually three times, and if they did something to annoy me, if I've been praying for them for months year, uh, and years, day, or not daily, but weekly, um, it's really hard to feel animosity towards them when I've been praying for them, for them so much. And a love develops when you pray so that you can wade through those things and work through them on the other side. So it keeps him, that's just one area, but he keeps him in task. When you're before the Lord in prayer, a lot of those things that come, uh, come in from the temptation of the world and of the devil and of the flesh, in prayer that can be pushed away. Your pastor has to be a holy man, a man of God, um, and clean before the Lord. All his sins confessed. Um, don't you agree? He just has to be, or you're in trouble. Really, he, he, he's worthless if he's not clean before God. And then he can pray for you if you carve out that time for him to pray. And you need it. You need his prayer. You need each other's prayer um, so he can do that. So that's why prayer. Why the ministry of the word? And what is it? So first of all, if a, a man, I'm thinking about a pastor now, those, those men had three years with Jesus, and that was their education. Then they had the Holy Spirit reminding them of those three years with Jesus. Um, your pastor, uh, if he's going to teach the word, he needs to be educated. He needs to know how to handle the, the biblical languages. He doesn't have to read them like English, but he has to know how to handle them. He needs an education uh, in Bible and the history of the Bible times, all that. So that's been done. Then he needs ongoing study, meditation, reading, and prayer. So all these things take time. Your pastor can't just get up or go to his, his little office on Saturday and come up with a talk for the next day. He needs to spend time in meditation and prayer and reading. Then he needs to ponder how best to dispense that knowledge to you. Believe it or not, we spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm doing right now, which is how do we tell these people without putting them to sleep? Nobody wants to come in on Sunday morning and listen to a commentary. They want a living person uh, teaching the word in a living way that can sink into their heart. So he needs to do that. And Bible study as well. It takes a lot of time to think, how do I teach this thing? It's so clear to me, but if I know if I don't spend time thinking about where they're at, what, what they know, where do I have to start? Um, a Bible teacher needs to, to think about all that. And then he needs to do the work of the preaching and the teaching. Comes, goes without saying. And then he needs to be a ceaseless guard against false uh, teaching, false theology. He, it's his job to be that point guy that, to say that's wrong. That's wrong thinking, that's wrong doctrine, uh, and we're not having that here. He is the shepherd that keeps you from the wolf. Sometimes because um, you can be entrapped by false thinking. And it's your pastor and, hope, and maybe your elders as well. I don't know them really personally. Um, but job to say that's just wrong thinking. Don't think that way. It's an important thing. 
But it takes time. He needs to know. He needs to know why that's false. And so when he hears about it, he's got to do some research. So that's why the apostles said, we're not going to abandon this ministry. There is another ministry that a pastor does. It's not in our text, but I throw, throw it out, and I call it spiritual conversation. So that would include counseling, but it's more so just in the lobby, uh, inadvertently, maybe when you're working around the church or whatever, or just in friendship and small group, just spiritual conversation that he has that, that helps you, encourages you, or, or rebukes you uh, along the way. And he needs to stay poised. Um, if your pastor is running around doing the waiting on tables, mowing the lawn, uh, filling communion cups, uh, waxing the pews, whatever it is, uh, or uh, you know, doing excessive amount of uh, counseling with one person, um, he becomes dry. Ever pick up a pen, ever maybe be on the phone and, or you pick up a pen to write down a number or something and the pen, pen doesn't work, it's out of ink, don't let your pastor run out of ink. Let him have that time where he can be refilled and refilled and refilled. He didn't put me up to this, by the way. <laughs> he told me you're going to think that when I told him what I was going to preach. All right. So, so they do it. They, they come back. They've got seven men. Now, here's a, a crazy thing that's amazing. All seven of these names that are given are Greek. They're all Greek names. So, in other words, they probably were all Hellenists. In fact, one of them actually was a Gentile, this guy Nicholas, um, a proselyte. A proselyte means that he's a Gentile that went the full route and became a, became a Jew, became, uh, put himself under the law. So, he, uh, he was actually uh, a Gentile. The other six are probably Hellenists. Now, we would make sure that there's three Hebrews and three Hellenists, and we'll throw in a Gentile on top of that. That's what we would do, but they didn't do that. They had this trust. We said, well, that's, you know, this is a problem with the Hellenists. Let's pick uh, seven Hellenist men. So it's an awesome thing. I don't know how to apply that. Maybe you do, uh, but it's pretty cool. These they set before the apostles. This is point number three, which is deployment. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, these two verses could be two more sermons. I'm not going to do that. So I just want to say that then they did it. Um, no stonewalling. No saying, well, I don't think I like that guy. I mean, the, the congregation came up to it, so they trusted it. They accepted them. Uh, nobody's saying, well, what about this guy over here? No, they took this, the seven, and they ordained them in a sense. They commissioned them, not ordained. They commissioned them. And they didn't second guess, and then they, they let him go. This is like what David said uh, to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22:16, and this is great. And if any of you are uh, parents of a son, uh, he says, get up, work, Yahweh be with you. Isn't that great? So they have a task, get up, do it, and Yahweh be with you. And that's what the church did. And that's what we need to do. You got a task, get up, do it, and the Lord will be with you. That's what David meant. And then verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, easily we could preach on that thing uh, for a whole sermon, but we're not. I'm just going to say that the result of them dealing with this issue and not letting the church split uh, on, these, uh, on these grounds um, was evangelical. So that the church um, multiplied 
not just added, but multiplied, and the, and the priests were obedient to the faith. If you follow the story of Jesus uh, through the book of Acts, um, that's an incredible thing that the priests, that, that many, a great many priests came. And that's because um, they realized that just one man can't do the job. Um, we all need to. Any church that where the pastor does all the work will grow small. Um, and hopefully, it's the goal that a church where everybody's doing their part will just naturally multiply. So that's my prayer for you. Of course, we reach a size when it's enough. <laughs> then we can share people with the rest of the community and other churches. But um, a healthy church is a growing church. Father, we thank you for this text, for the rebuke, for the encouragement. Thank you for the, uh, the wisdom you gave these apostles. We probably wouldn't be here this morning if this division had taken place. But you are the head of the church and didn't let that happen. I pray for this church, as we've already prayed. I pray that they would be united, that they would be one in spirit, that each one would know their part and each one would do their part. Whether it's here uh, in this property or whether it's home or it's in their workplace, their community. I pray that this would be a church full of your workers. In Jesus' name, amen.